What companies deserve your hard-earned dollar? Which would you want to work for? How can you know if they share your values? Just ask us. Just Capital is a nonprofit that tracks who really means business in supporting workers, customers, communities, the environment, and shareholders. We measure progress, track success, and help them be better. When you see the Just Capital seal, you know what's real because just business is better business. Visit justcapital.com to learn who makes your dollar count. This is John Howell Essential Cuts, your daily rundown of the best of the best from today's show on 890 WLS. I saw this in my uh, Chicago Sun-Times, one of my favorite writers. Lee Bay is here, the office of the chief architect. The next mayor has a very big role to play in the city's design future. Apparently, we're at a crossroads here in the city. When Lee, welcome back. How are you? Good to be back. Uh, how are you? I'm doing well. Did you have a nice weekend? I did. I did. But you know, but they're always too short. But uh, but it was good, though. Yeah. Well, we know about the crime issues and keeping the streets clean and the traffic issues and the budgetary issues and things of this nature. But great Chicago mayors have great vision, whether you're talking about some of our early mayors or even Richard J. Daly or Richard M. Daly, for that mind, uh, matter. Who do you see, not who do you see winning, but whoever wins, Johnson or Vallis, what's going to be first on their list of actionable items when it comes to essentially the city's design future? You know, that's a good question because um, it obviously it depends so widely uh, on the candidate. Neither one, neither one of them have, have really um, pushed um, a kind of design and architecture and big project vision. Paul Vallis comes the closest. He said he wanted to create this kind of standalone development department and um, come up with a Burnham plan, a new Burnham plan for Chicago. Uh, but still no details on exactly what that is. How close do we come to actually utilizing Burnham's plan? Oh, you, you know, you know, uh, some parts very close. I mean, when you look at parts of downtown, re, you know, revitalizing the river, you know, looking at Wacker Drive, I mean, it's very close to the plan. Uh, when you look at the maybe even the interstate expressway system, as weird as it seems because it mm. comes along in the 50s, uh, you know, it, 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 um, he talked about these kind of roads that would emanate from the city, these super highways, and then connect with the ring road, which, you know, kind of looks like 294 in a way. Uh, you know, so, so in some ways, we, you know, we, we, we did it right. We, you know, where we didn't do it was he saw a, a civic capital, right, where the University of Illinois uh, Chicago campus is with this big dome. Everyone, every Chicagoan has seen this rendering of this kind of big dome in the middle of the city. Well, that's where it would be. So some things we got right, and then some things we didn't do at all. Before we talk about the future, one more question about the past. What kind of debt do we owe to Montgomery Ward out of all people for saving the lakefront? Oh, you know, tons and tons because, you know, you know, um, the lakefront was about to be built, was being built upon. Uh, you know, there was even even on the South Lakefront near where the old Michael Reese Hospital is. There was like a beer factory, you know, so we so we were we were happy to build on the lake uh, until his suits cleared all that up. And um you know, and, and set the stage, set the, the civic mindset for the idea that the lake we don't touch. And uh, we would have, we, you know, we would have kind of emulated Manhattan had we not protected that uh, lakefront. We, we, we would, or maybe maybe some of the more industrial cities of the Midwest, like Cleveland. Um, Detroit. Uh, uh, Detroit, you know, which really built up their, their lakefronts uh, at, the, at the time. But he didn't think much about the river. He put his own uh, catalog house in the Chicago River, right? Yeah, so yeah. the river, the river, you could do things with. The river was a toilet in those days. Everybody threw everything into the river. 
sure was. Send it down to St. Louis. Here you go. Thanks. You're welcome. <laughs> Pretty good idea. Yeah, we don't want our own trash and our own sewage. We'll send it to St. Louis. So That's looking right. forward, is the first project for Vallis or Johnson, whomever, essentially signing off on whatever the casino turns out to be? Yeah, either either signing off on it, <coughs> excuse me, or or peeling it back in some way, which is what we, which is what I suggested. Um, so the casino is, is huge. Uh, the red line extension uh, also huge. I mean, that's one that no mayor, succeeding mayor, will probably you know would, you know will will kill. So that'll happen. So so that that'll be big. Um, but but the casino the casino is a big one. And 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 what to do with Soldier Field, which we've talked about in this show before. Yeah, we'll get to that. But the neighborhoods, obviously, both Fallis and Johnson want redevelopment in the neighborhood. But everybody says that. Every mayor says that. Does Lightfoot's Invest Southwest Initiative have a chair, a chance, I should say, a chance of uh, uh, being implemented under either new mayor? I, I think so. I think so. I think, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if a new mayor, you know, changed the name, you know, uh, you know, put their own fingerprints on it in some way, which there's room enough to do. I mean, you could add housing and parks, excuse me, and other things to it. But I, I, don't, I don't think it goes away. All right, now on to Soldier Field. I've not, I know that every, I think every mayoral candidate says no tax dollars for Soldier Field, you know, propping up a pro team, not helping out the Bears. We've put our hand on that stove previously. But have you heard either Vallis or Johnson have any concrete proposals for Soldier Field and the museum campus? You know, I have not. I have not. You know, both, both candidates, have been really, you know, because you know, obviously, because crime is the thing that that takes the, mm-hmm. that, you know, that, that kind of rules the uh, the attention. Neither one of them has really um, so much really has really so much espoused a sort of the, a, a, a kind of a design idea of what they want to do. So it's, it'll be interesting to see what, what what each what the new mayor will do with that because something has to be done. It can't be left alone. Uh, the bears are, I mean, they're, unless you know, you, you know, the bears skin flint ways could resurface, <laughs> but, but, uh, but like old man that. Hallis throwing uh, uh, nickels around like manhole covers, right? Like manhole covers, right? Right. right. <laughs> you, you never know. Yeah. You know. There's always a ten percent chance that they could do that, but I think that uh, I think they're gone. I think. Oh, I think they're I, gone too. It's, it's a deal that they're going to they're going to have to dig some sort of lake out there in Arlington tonight so they can plop a casino in it. <laughs> That's the latest I've heard because uh, you know that is now prohibited uh but you know arlington Heights want to they want to make the bears happy and the bears want gambling so they're gonna have to uh, dig out a big hole and stick a a, a casino on top of the uh, water and let it go yeah I, had, I hadn't heard that but i would not be surprised i would not be surprised oh i had one more question but it has escaped me now uh oh i know i'm gonna have uh commissioner johnson on the program on wednesday we believe for an extended stay what should I ask him regarding his vision for Chicago? Do you have a suggested question or two that I could uh, present to him? Good question. Uh, you know, I, I would I would bring up Soldier Field, McCormick Place, and Museum Campus. Looking at looking at it as an ensemble, what's the future for that? Uh, if if I had a part two question, um, I think your Invest Southwest question is great. What happens with that, uh, and can it be uh, added to in a way to make it do more than it does now? So many politicians, they start these grandiose projects and, and schemes, and they last, uh, you know, multiple, multiple years with, uh, you know, taxes having to come or go or what have you, and legislators being involved in it, and they never seem to come to fruition. And I wonder if, you know, this is such a big deal for Lori Lightfoot. Well, Lori Lightfoot's almost out of work, so we'll see what happens. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, but, the, but the good ideas always stick around. I mean, mayors talked about doing something with Northern Island. It took three or four mayors to get to Bailey who did something with it. Millennium Park was dreamed of in the early part of the 20th century, and it kind of finally manifested itself in the late 20th century or, or, or early 21st century. So the good ideas always stick around. It's the bad ones that tend to, that tend to kind of go away. Hey, Lee, as an architecture critic, and the building was gone before you arrived at the paper, I believe, what are your thoughts on that, you know, the gray little squat Sun-Times building along the river there, the Trump Tower occupies that space now. But when you look at pictures of that or you think of the history of that building, did it fit the newspaper? Oh, it certainly did. You know, I missed that building. I was there. You know, this is, you know, I came, I returned to the Sun-Times in 2019, but I was there from 92 to 2000. So that was my home. I still miss that building. I mean, I, it, um, you know, gray squat, uh, you're absolutely right, but you could have just to the river a way you could pass through and watch the printing presses run when you came through at the right time in the evening. Uh, I, I still miss it. And it, it fit the paper too, as opposed to the dichotomy of Colonel McCormick's grandiose uh, Gothic tower. Uh, it, it did. I mean, it was a working class paper. Uh, it still is. And uh, and it was a really working class building, but also a modern paper. I mean, they experimented with typefaces and photography in inter- interesting ways after World War II. And the paper being in a modern building was supposed to sort of underscore that as opposed to the old fashioned, right, Tribune. And that you're right, that, and that Gothic tower, which they don't even have anymore. So. Yeah. Nice condos if you can afford it. Really? Really? Rick Kogan just wrote a, a piece on the condos that are now part of the Tribune Tower. And he said, I can write about them, but I certainly can't afford them. <laughs> you know, my um, my old office, the Sun Times, is where the parking garage is in the Trump Tower, and I just, you know, and I I can barely afford to park in there. So, uh, <laughs> uh, Lee Bay, thanks for your time. We'll read more in your Chicago Sun Times. You're also a member of the editorial board. We appreciate it. Have a great week. You're listening to John Howell Essential Cuts on 890 WLS. Are you ready for hard-hitting observations? Reality remains reality, no matter how hard you try to ignore it. The Ben Shapiro Show brings you all the news you need to know in America today. Again, I'm all here for the pop culture, people dating each other for the press. Ben breaks down the culture and never gives an inch. Every so often, and by every so often, I mean literally every 27 seconds where the producer gets fired. The Ben Shapiro Show, on YouTube or wherever you listen. All right, so nearly one year after the Oscar night slap heard around the world, Chris Rock finally, finally addressed it during his show on Netflix in, shall we say, profane and emphatic terms. Let me read here. Rock said that uh, he took the hit and uh, his wife, quote, his wife was having sex with, I'm using a I'm filling in the blank there. His wife was blanking her son's friend. I normally would not talk like this, but for some reason they put it on the Internet. She hurt him way more than he hurt me. You've heard that. He was joking about that he still has uh, Will Smith's song, uh, Summertime, uh, ringing in his ears a year after the incident. Just to review, this uh, is we watched this happen in real time at the Oscars a year ago. Jada, I love you. G.I. Jane 2, can't wait to see it. All right? Because she was bald. <laughs> it's, that, was a, that was a nice one. Okay. I'm out here. Uh-oh. Richard. Here he comes. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. Will Smith just smacked the shit out of me. And he waited a year to say this. You know, you know what people say? They always say, uh, words hurt. Anybody that says words hurt, 
has never been punched in the face. <laughs> Y'all know what happened to me, getting smacked by Suge Smith, and people I didn't hurt. It still hurts. Well, let's see what our friend Jason Nathanson, who previewed this for us last week, is out uh, working for ABC in Los Angeles and joins us on the Magic Box. Well, the Internet blew up. Uh, basically, half of the people think he went too far. The other half of America doesn't think he went far enough. What do you think? Yeah, he. Uh, it was interesting because we knew he was going to talk about it. I don't think, I at least didn't think that he was going to go this hard and this deep on Will Smith and Jada Pinkett Smith and their marriage and, and all sorts of it, basically reigniting the feud itself. Uh, it was interesting that he, I mean, we thought he would do some jokes, um, but he really, really kind of took digs at them and, and made this, you know, a year later, I think, I think a lot of us thought it was done, at least, you know, from Will Smith's side of things. He had apologized several times. He's in this new movie, Emancipation, uh, which Will Smith made a joke about because Will, uh, Will Smith plays a slave in that. And Chris Rock said that he used to love Will Smith, and now he watches the movie Emancipation just to see him get whooped, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. which is one of the jokes that a lot of people took a lot of offense at. If there, if there were anything, uh, especially if you go on black Twitter, they were, they were kind of... A lot of people were upset about that joke in particular. To, to use slavery to make a joke, uh, they were not really happy with. So, you know, it, it's interesting. A lot of it is, uh, I, I, it was, it felt a lot more personal to Chris Rock than just jokes, right? He really seemed to still be upset over this. Uh, this was not something that he had gotten over, and it certainly isn't something that he is forgiving and forgetting about. You know, I know he's been on the road. He came to Chicago and did not address uh, much of the incident. So. Has he tipped his hand as far as this routine, or is this uh, brand new for Netflix over the weekend? Oh, yeah, it's interesting. Almost all the jokes we knew that were going to happen. Um, the, the emancipation joke, uh, that was written about. He had done these jokes at various stops before. I don't know that he had ever done this full seven minutes that he did at one time. Uh, he might have done a little here and a little there. But uh, I, if, you were, if you were looking around on, on Friday and Saturday, you saw some of these jokes start to leak out that he had done in other places, uh, the emancipation joke being one of them. And people were already upset at the emancipation joke. Interestingly, I don't know if this was um, if people caught this or not, but in the original, uh, what people were writing about the emancipation joke, uh, he had said Chris Rock had said they said that he had said, I watch emancipation just to see him get whipped. He changed the mm. word to whooped mm -hmm. in, in the actual thing. So maybe he, that was Chris Rock you know, trying to soften the joke a little bit. I, I don't know. Um, but that material had kind of been out there, and then there was extra stuff that hadn't been out there before at all. Jason Nathan, so what about the timing here? Because obviously he was the hottest interview get after the Oscars and has been for the better part of a year. And yet, as he said, and especially hasn't been on The View, he hasn't sat down with Oprah or Gail. The timing is really good right ahead of the Oscars and for uh, Chris Rock in particular, isn't it? Well, yeah, and that's, an, that's no mistake there. Chris Rock is a smart businessman. He and Netflix both know what they are doing. Rock had said early on last year that he wasn't going to, like, there's, no, there's no, nothing in it for him to sit down with Oprah. He doesn't get any money out of that. that it, I mean, it's good for his fame, I guess, or notoriety, but, it, you know, he doesn't need that necessarily. He chose to do it in his own time and in his, in his own forum in a, in, a, in a setting that 
theoretically is making him money. I don't know what the deal was with Netflix and if they revamped it at all, knowing that this would be a big deal. But he did the thing. If Chris Rock had just done a regular comedy special, I don't know that we'd be talking about it right now. Well, you know what? As much as you said, he's coming out this weekend. I have Netflix, you know, and I was I thought, okay, maybe I'll watch it. Uh, but I've completely forgot about it. And it wasn't until <laughs> afterwards, and I saw all the brouhaha on it, that I thought maybe tonight I'll go home and watch the entire show because he, you know, he did some things on politics and you know white disgruntlement and uh, uh, and some other things that I'm kind of interested in. And now I'm really interested in it. So yay, capitalism! Well, yeah, exactly. It worked. This is this is exactly what they were trying to do and get people talking about it. Because, you know, it, it seems these days if you have a comedy special and it's not controversial, mm-hmm. uh, it, did you really have a comedy special? <laughs> you know, it's Dave Chappelle yeah. or it's Chris Rock, Ricky Gervais also, you know, and there were Chris Rock touched on a couple trans jokes in this, which seems to be the hot thing among comedians. I don't really know why that's the subject, but Chris Rock had a, a little bit, but he, he kind of got off of that pretty quickly. This was the thing that people wanted to hear him talk about. And he's, you know, the timing was no mistake. The first joke that you played uh, about him, um, you know, people say words don't hurt. He he had said that early on and then went off of it. So you're like, oh. That's is it. he going to talk about this? Yeah. And then he waited until the very end, of course. and it's the last seven minutes of the show. Have the Smiths responded? Have not seen anything from them. Yep. Uh, thanks so much, uh, Jason. Appreciate your time as always, sir. Sure thing. Take Jason care. Nathanson in Los Angeles joining us here on The Big 89. But I'm not a victim, baby. You will never see me on Oprah or Gail crying. Never going to happen. <laughs> I couldn't believe it, and I love men in black. No. And uh, one more. This one contains the uh, subject we were discussing with Jason. I love Will Smith. My whole life I root for this mother okay? And now I, I watch Emancipation just to see him get whooped. Not whipped. Whooped. This is John Howell Essential Cuts on 890 WLS. Movies, TV shows, books, podcasts, and more. It's what women binge with Melissa Joan Hart and her friend Amanda Lee. We have Lauren Bosworth with us. Yay! The Hills. So what is like your number one question from fans? The primary question I still get asked was, what, is it real? <laughs> In 2024, to me, is a surprising question to get because I feel like everybody has been through the reality TV gauntlet at this point. What women binge wherever you listen. I guess that we would consider this to be today's talent-deserving wider recognition segment, although he's a returning guest, a regular guest, our expert in law enforcement. Uh, Retired chief from Riverside, Illinois. He writes regularly. You should read what he publishes. It's always very insightful and very educational. Uh, I guess now, if I'm not mistaken, since he's been appointed as an ambassador for the Illinois National Law Enforcement Officers Memorial, do we now call you the Honorable Chief Tom Weitzel, Tom, how do you want to be addressed? No, that's that. Uh, good evening, and no, that's just a. It's the title that comes with the position for um, each state. So I've been import, uh, appointed ambassador for the state of Illinois, and they're trying to get an ambassador for every state, but that's that's not happened yet. But that's our goal. Okay, so you were the chief in Riverside for 13 years. You retired a couple of years ago. Take my listeners back. Until I did research for this interview, I never realized this incident happened, and I apologize for that. Take us back to your on-duty late at night, 2 in the morning, August 12th, 1987. You're working in a patrol car 
alone. You come upon a car with tinted windows parked suspiciously. Uh, and as uh, as I read, you were unaware that a decision you made three years ago was about to save your life. Take it from there and explain what happened before we get to why we're having you on today. Yeah, it was a, just a patrolman in a single vehicle back then. And about three o'clock in the morning, I was on patrol. And Riverside had this ordinance where you couldn't, you had to leave your parking lights on at nighttime because they didn't have any street lights. They had gas lights. So there was a car parked in front of a residential home in this residential area. I got out of the vehicle to actually just give it a ticket, but to get the VIN number because it didn't have license plates on it. And when I exited my vehicle, there was an individual in the bushes and an individual in the backseat of the car who rolled out of the car and then had shot me with a pump shotgun. And I found out later that it was birdshot in there, so it was a hunting rifle. He racked it which actually probably saved my life along with my bulletproof vest because what had happened is the bird shot spread and hit me in the eyes and in the chest. And most of that bird shot was absorbed by the bulletproof vest. I'll get back to that. But you heard that the they racked around, and that may have saved you too because at that point you started turning or moving a little bit, defending yourself. So after you recovered, it was a long recovery, and you're lucky you didn't lose your sight. Um your wife, Meg, wanted you to retire, and you said, no, this is my life's calling. Yeah, we were newly married, and I didn't really have, this is what I had trained to do. I didn't really have uh, any other options, I believe, nor did I want to. Um, but um, it took a while to get back to the routine, but I was probably recovered within about six weeks, and I was back working probably within about eight weeks. But, yeah, initially my wife just wanted me to give it up for obvious reasons. You can, I think your listeners can probably relate to that. Chief, is uh, walking up on a car at night the single most dangerous moment? I mean, obviously there's other SWAT situations and sniper situations, but that it's, it is significantly dangerous for police officers to approach a car, especially at night. Yeah, I mean, in my case, it was just to put a parking ticket on, and the car had these dark windows, so my spotlight wouldn't even penetrate. That it, they had, they had triple coated the windows with that black dark, so I couldn't see anybody in there. And there were, you know, sometimes I got some criticism after that as why I didn't return fire. But I wanted, you know, your listeners to know that it wasn't a gun battle. This was an ambush. I was just complete. Mm -hmm. I was just shot. I didn't have an ad. I, they rolled out of the car, racked it, and the next thing I know, I was at the hospital. Yeah, I want, I want to come back to that incident a little bit later on. Now that you've been appointed an ambassador for the National Law Enforcement Officers Memorial Fund here in Illinois, you're the honorable ambassador, we need to make sure that we support the National Law Enforcement Officers Memorial Fund. There's obviously local groups that do this as well to make sure that the rank and file in all 50 states have the equipment that they need. Yeah, you the. the the National Law Enforcement Memorial Fund is made up of a bunch of components. One is the memorial itself. There's also the museum. There's officer safety programs. There's fundraising. And then there's the part where I'm going to be helping, at least locally in Illinois, if I can, in the unfortunate incident where you have a line of duty death. Um, I, we can assist ambassadors, consist making sure the families get everything they deserve. And I'm, there's a lot they don't know about. There's cash. There's college. If you're killed in the line of duty, you, the federal government and the state governments will pay for your children to go to the state colleges for free of charge. But you have to know how to do that. You have to know that it's available. And you need somebody to walk you through those processes because you're in shock. So that's going to be part of the duties in addition to the fundraising and speaking about officer safety issues. 
So in 87, you get shot, you recover, you go back to work, eventually become chief of Riverside. Your wife wants you to quit, you don't quit, and incidentally, all three of your boys have gone into law enforcement, they're officers in local communities around Chicago. The guys took off back in 87, you're laying there wounded, obviously, they don't catch the guy until seven years later, or more than seven years later. Basically, he had gotten out of prison. My understanding was he was gunning for these were assassins, not robbers, who wanted to kill, I guess, a, a, a state prison guard, or that's the conjecture. But did this guy eventually walk? Because before you got involved with then-Senator Judy Bartopinka to amend the state law, the uh, statute of limitations had expired on this particular attack, correct? That's correct. Back then, it was only three years. For shooting a police officer on duty. Yeah, attempted murder was, there was a statute of limitations. So there wouldn't have been if I had died. And then Judy Bartopinka, when, you know, she's now deceased, but when she was state senator, she heard about that. She lived in Riverside. She approached me and said, I'm going to get this changed for you. You want to work on it with me? And we worked on the law together, Judy Bartopinka and myself, and she got it passed that there was no statute of limitations. It didn't help my case right. he was, when I was shot. Yeah. But it was before it. Yeah, yeah. Your, your attack happened before the law was amended, but thank goodness the law is amended now. There shouldn't be a statute of limitations on shooting a law enforcement officer, especially in ambush. Right, and, and they only got the lead. ATF actually got a lead on a gun case where somebody wanted to exchange going to prison on a lengthy gun charge to give up a suburban police shooting. Yeah. What do you think the next mayor, whoever it is, ought to do regarding the next Chicago superintendent? Well, you know, I have my opinion that they should be from within and with the state of affairs that's going on with the rapid crime and then the morale in the city, Chicago Police Department and recruiting and retention. But I also think they need to recruit a chief that is with the officers on the street. And I mean that that's kind of a different policing for a big metropolitan area. But you can have four, five, six, seven, eight deputy chiefs running the day-to-day operation administratively. I mean, Chicago already has deputy chiefs of administration, operations, organized crime, et cetera. They, that, that, that new superintendent needs to be free from that office and needs to be out with the men and women of the Chicago Police Department. And I sincerely mean that. There needs to be new leadership and a new leadership style. Hire people to work under you to do the administrative work. But as the leader, get out on the street, get out with your officers, way more than what was done under the previous superintendent. And just to double down, really should come from within the force, within the department? I believe now in today's, what, what's going on with the city of Chicago, you know, a lot, some, the average citizen might think morale is not a big deal, but in law enforcement, it's a huge component to the job. And I really believe that they need to, to go back inside. Now, I, I was reading an article the other day that said the uh, bench is low, meaning mm-hmm. they don't believe that there's a lot of talent there. I disagree with that. There is a lot of talent inside the Chicago Police Department command ranks. I, I, I'm sure of it. And they can find somebody that can lead the men and women of the police department from within. It's really good for morale. It's good for operations. And if there's a qualified individual there, they should go inside. The Honorable Tom Weitzel, retired chief from the Riverside, Illinois Police Department. Please go to the National Law Enforcement Officers Memorial Fund.org. I think you can get there by just going NLEOMF.org, but uh, double check that. And please support the organization. You're listening to John Howell, Essential Cuts on 890 WLS. I hope somebody is 
checking the voicemails this afternoon in there. The old control room. I know that there's a couple of technical snafus when it comes to retrieving the voicemails, but certainly want to, if we advertise the voicemail line, we do want to go through the voicemails and play the best of them or the worst of them. Either way, it's fine with me. Good, bad, and the ugly. Voicemail line is, don't tell me, don't tell me, 312-822-9825. Thank you. You're welcome. That's right. Took me quite a while. Just after the 5.30 news, Tom Weitzel will be here, retired chief from Riverside. He's now been appointed as an ambassador for the Illinois National Law Enforcement Officers Memorial. He'd like to ask for our help. I think most of us would be more than happy to provide it to him and his fellow officers. We'll talk to the retired chief, or I I still call him chief. Once chief, always chief. Uh, Tom Weitzel coming up just after the 5.30 news. So good news, ladies and gentlemen, the Republicans and the Democrats are making nice in D.C. and they're working on the Railway Safety Act of 2023. Here to save America, too late for Ohio, but here to save the rest of us. Uh, was introduced last week. It's co-sponsored by a bipartisan group of senators. It does have a higher bar on the House side, politically speaking, but the Senate bill aims to address several key questions that have arisen from both disasters in Ohio, well, both accidents, one clearly a disaster, the other one not, including why Ohio was not told about the cargo that was rolling through the Buckeye State. Well, let's start there with Justin Finch. Maybe he can explain this because it seems to me, and he's uh, in D.C. working for ABC. Uh, Justin, thanks for your time. Don't most freight trains have hazardous materials on board? Uh, John, that's a safe assumption. These trains are going east and west, north and south across the country every day, carrying a variety of chemicals and substances. And Sarah Brown, one of the co-sponsors of that Railway Safety Act, says not every time do states or emergency responders in those states know what's coming through. He says that knowledge is critical for firefighters and other agencies to be able to respond in the event of a derailment like we saw in East Palestine. But even if they had known what was on the train, it's not like they're going to pre-place the emergency personnel there on the off chance that it derails. It seems like, you know, the old Shakespearean never confuse activity with accomplishment. That's right. You know, there, it's not as if they could have been right in the right place at the right time of this derailment. But Brown says just knowing what's on those trains and knowing perhaps with training how those agencies could have responded could have in some way enhanced the response that we saw on the ground from those crews. Of course, he's also saying, too, Those crews alone cannot be held responsible. It is up to the government and to the rail companies to uh, put in place stricter protocols to make sure the risk for such events is diminished. I noticed that our transportation secretary said this last week, too, but isn't there some sort of issue now between the government and the states and railroads as to how big of a crew they have to have on every freight train? Uh, true. The, the bill is calling for at least a, a two-person crew to be on these trains to be able to b- better assess these kind of uh, different risk factors that come with transporting these materials here. Uh, they point out, too, that companies like Norfolk Southern, which ran that train in East Palestine, have been uh, pushing for a one-person operation on these trains uh, to essentially 
be responsible for the uh, inspection and oversight. And they're saying that uh, is not acceptable. They, they need to have two people at least to be able to uh, have a better accounting of the, the safety of these trains as they move across the country. Let's be honest. The uh, r- railroads would probably love to eliminate all the operators and just go with AI anyway. That's the future. And and a major concern going forward, uh, even as they are trying to introduce this bill, and it has support from the White House and bipartisan senators in uh, the Senate. Uh, there there is concern that it may not do as well in the House. That that from Sheriff Brown himself over the weekend. But they do point out as well, within a month's time, two derailments alone in Ohio. Uh, the second one. Uh, apparently not leaking anything hazardous, but the the risk remains and the concern, too. These can happen uh, quite frequently, and uh, they want to make sure going forward there is something in place to protect the people who live around these tracks. The Republicans on the House side are going to say the bill is overly restrictive, I'm guessing. Uh, the regulation factor is the major concern, but uh, between the support they're seeing in the Senate, they're hoping they can bring over some people in the House to also back this. The president saying he wants this uh, pushed through as soon as possible to find it. Thank you very much, Justin Finch in D.C., watching the um, bipartisan bill. Boy, you don't hear that very often, at least on the Senate side. I think it probably dies in the House, but we shall see. Thank you, uh, Justin. Much appreciated. All right. Thank you, John. I got the free train that is not marty stewart who i saw last night at the old town school of folk music up on lincoln avenue just south of lincoln square that's the great uh, doc watson i think his uh, son alongside tragically killed in a tractor accident America's second most dangerous job, working alone in the fields on a tractor. America's most dangerous job, working on the flight deck of an aircraft carrier. John Howell, Essential Cuts. Check back every weekday for another episode of John Howell, Essential Cuts on 890 WLS. The Ed Milet Show showcases the greatest peak performers sharing their journey, knowledge, and thought leadership. Sebastian Maniscalco. I'm a comedian. In my 20s, I was in, like, in a company, and I don't know, like, how marketing, sales. Yeah, you're a brand. You're a company. Yeah, and... Like Jay-Z says, I'm a businessman. Yeah. Yeah. To that. Remind me not to quote any hip-hop lyrics again. That was just a big miss. <laughs> when you first said it, I'm like, yeah, he's a businessman. Yeah, I nailed it at the end. I pulled it together. It just took me a minute. The Ed Milet Show is available on YouTube or wherever you listen.